Good afternoon, my lovely friends. This is Daniel from Business Life and Ayahuasca with Daniel Cleland. And today we have an excellent conversation with my friend, the man from Third Wave .co, Mr. Paul Austin, a professional in providing legitimate information about psychedelics of all different kinds. Today, we go through a wide-ranging conversation that I'm sure you're going to enjoy. And this conversation, as always, has been brought to you by Soltara Healing Center in Costa Rica. If you feel called to work with ayahuasca medicine in the Shipibo tradition, please look up soltara.co or on social media at Soltara Healing Center. And if you prefer to speak with us in person, please call 1-800-397-1730. If you absolutely love this conversation today, please hit us up with a five-star review and some commentary on Apple Podcasts. Like and subscribe, share with your friends and loved ones or anybody who might derive some value from this conversation. Thank you so much for listening. We love you. Enjoy the conversation. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the show. Today I have Mr. Paul Austin, the founder of the thethirdwave.co. This is a huge online community, an educational platform. Their mission as listed on the website is to share trusted research-based content that helps you feel safe, supported, and empowered as you follow your path towards personal transformation. But I would like to hear it straight from the mouth of Mr. Paul Austin. But first, Paul, how are you doing, my friend? I'm great. I'm I'm ecstatic to be on the show today. You know, we had the chance to record one for Third Ways podcast a couple of weeks ago, so it's fun to know that the uh, the you know we're just getting to switch spots a little bit and, and drop in more. So I'm yeah. I'm stoked to talk about all the things. Good stuff. Where are you stationed today? You're kind uh, of a transient podcaster. Yeah, I'm back at home in Eden, Utah. I moved out to the mountains four or five months ago. I'd been in big cities for all of my 20s. You know, I spent a year in Turkey and then was in Thailand and Chiang Mai for a year and then in Portugal and New York City and Miami. And at some point within the last year, I was like, I really feel like the mountains or, or you know, nature and, and the trees and the woods and all that feel way more, way more like home. So I, uh, I had hired someone for Third Wave, our, our new head of growth, who happened to be out here, just bought a house with his wife and kids. And I thought, you know, why not come out here and mountain bike and snowboard and uh, just have a little more space. So calling, calling in from my apartment here in, here in Eden. So this is where you're from originally? I'm from Michigan originally. So from Grand Rapids. I grew up in like a small, small town in West Michigan, 15,000 people. Uh, I should say a suburb between two smaller cities and spent the first 20 year, 21 years of my life living in West Michigan, I went to uh, a small, like four-year liberal arts school, got my bachelor's degree. And then when I was 21, I just had enough of the sort of small town traditional lifestyle and decided to venture out into, into parts unknown, as, as, as Anthony Bourdain would call it, and um, ended, up, ended up in Turkey. And, and, you know, I'm still... It's interesting because... You know, in, in the podcast that we got to do together, you you talked a lot about the path of building Soltara, 
and 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 also what you built before Soltara in in the Amazon with that retreat center, and that's where my heart has been lately around like you know third wave and and what we've built with third wave as a as a platform and the community has largely been virtual, and I've really felt this desire to root that somewhere physical. So I've been away from Michigan for the last ten years. I mean, I visit here and there, but I've sort of been keeping an eye out about. Well, what would it look like to actual to set up like an actual retreat center in the state of Michigan? Sort in of Michigan, like a, a prodigal okay. son returning home because, and I'll, I'll tell you why. And I'd, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on this. You know, um, so you know, your audience is probably somewhat familiar with a lot of the momentum that's going around on psychedelics. I know you had Matthew Johnson on the show. Yeah, 100%. Um, you know. So there's the FDA approval, but then there's, you know, the states and the cities that are decriminalizing and legalizing. So we saw that with Oregon legalizing psilocybin therapy. And the hometown that I'm from, Grand Rapids, is about to pass a measure to decriminalize all plant medicine. So I think they'll be the next major city to do that. And beyond that, the state of Michigan, uh, there's a senator in the legislature that just introduced a bill to legalize psychedelics on a statewide level in Michigan. So Michigan is actually, of all the Midwest states, fairly progressive. Cannabis has been legal there for a couple of years Mm. now. Um, Detroit is sort of a stronghold for more progressive values. And most importantly, and I think you'll resonate with this and being in the location that you are, Michigan is close to water. It's not salt water, but it's fresh water. And I'm just tracking you know, living out in the West here in Utah for the last little bit, noticing how the how the Colorado River is, you know, in a total drought and drying out. I'm sort of anticipating like where are going to be great places to set up a home for the next 10 or 15 or 20 years. Costa Rica is one of them for for many, many reasons. But I also look at, you know, the Midwest and in particular uh, Michigan because of the Great Lakes there and all the access to fresh water as uh, a potential location and people there are kind. Uh, property values are low, um, so that's just that. That's kind of the Paul Austin world, right? Right now, and what's going on? That sounds exciting, man. And and I totally agree with you. Um, being around bodies of water, there's something. There's something serene about it. There's it's just something just feels natural, and I think that's probably an evolutionary thing, right? And also. Because we, as we evolved as humans, we evolved alongside bodies of water. I mean, we couldn't live. I mean, we weren't drilling wells and shipping bottled water across continents when we were hunters and gatherers, you know, 100,000 years ago, <clears throat> even 50,000 years ago. So um, um, that uh, totally makes sense to me. And especially if you're going to be working with, you know, spiritual retreats or plant medicines or anything like that just being able to stare at the ripples on a on a lake or like the rolling waves of the great lakes i know it's not like a i know it's not like a crazy uh a crazy uh you know barrel on the from the pacific ocean or something like that but i grew up near the great lakes i grew up in ontario and you still get some you know you still get that vast body of water vibe so you know, although Michigan, it's not the warmest place in the winter, bro. <laughs> it's not. It's not. I think climate change may shift that a little bit. You know, it seems to be. And that's just the nature of it, right? It's like, it's four seasons. And 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 there's also an appeal in that from, let's say, a marketing or 
or whatever perspective is, you know, you can you experience spring, summer, fall, winter. And what's great about Michigan compared to the other Midwest states is that Michigan is protected by the Great Lakes. So whereas a place like Minnesota, Illinois, Wisconsin will get very, very cold and frigid, Michigan gets cold certainly in certain places, but where I grew up, it would not get, you know, anywhere below on most days, 20, 20 degrees Fahrenheit, which I understand is still cold, mm. but you know, we'll, we'll work, we'll work with it as we have to. So. I was going to make a bad joke there about climate change being a hoax, but yeah. uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I was just like, nah, fuck it. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so Michigan is on the like east side of Lake Michigan, right? Right. So, so the wind coming from the west usually is going over the water, which is generally moderating to temperatures, right? Yeah, it's called lake effect. Yeah. So we'll get lake effect snow, we'll get lake effect weather. Um, and that means we get a lot more snow. Like there is a ton of snow, but it means it, it keeps the the temperature is a little bit more moderate. And and people go surfing on Lake Michigan. I mean, you know, October, November is ideal because it's a lot more windy. Um, and you obviously need to wear a dry suit if you're going out at that point in time. But Michigan, I still find to be one of those lesser known, like undiscovered places that when people go there, particularly in the summer, they're just astounded by the natural beauty. I mean, there's there's incredible dunes going all the way up the coast of Lake Michigan. Uh, there's a place called Sleeping Bear Dunes that's in the northern part near Traverse City that was voted the most beautiful mm. place in America by Good Morning America a few years ago. And uh, I think to, you know, m- my vision is is similar to what Sultara has built, but even beyond that, looking at like what, what uh, Esalen has built in Big Sur or what the Omega Institute has mm. built in upstate New York, you know, like what would it take to create a thousand Esalens or a thousand Omegas or even a thousand Sultaras all over, all over the globe. And uh, so much of that is, is reciprocity and, and knowing the land that you're actually building on and having a relationship with it. And so when I think about well, where is it that I want to set roots for 10, 15, 20 years? I mean, I just know Michigan so well that it, it, it's continued to come up. So I've been looking at properties and, you know, there's the lower peninsula. There's also the upper peninsula. So we'll, low values, we'll low property values don't hurt either, right? Like, I mean, if you're you get on something where, you know, you're not overspending and you may be catching upward wave. Exactly. Know, no pun intended, I guess. Exactly. <laughs> Um, so, so like, how old are you now, Paul? 31. 31. So when you got, you got out of college, um, you, you went traveling and kind of, uh, and went around the world, but when did you really start to get into like growing your, growing the third wave? So the, the story around that is I'm 19, I'm a sophomore in college. Uh, and I have a, my best friend from high school reach out and he's like, Hey, found some mushrooms. You want to do some mushrooms? And he was the, also the same friend who introduced me to cannabis when I was 16, uh, very independent thinker, very mature. And so I trusted him. And so we did mushrooms and they were, it was an interesting experience. It wasn't profoundly life-changing, but it was an interesting experience. And then a few months later, 
uh, LSD came on the scene uh, in my life. And so I did that with several friends outdoors, early May day, beautiful setting, higher dose. And that was more like the classic mystical experience, profound change, like, oh my gosh, I'm one with everything. Energy is everything around us. You know, I'm sure your audience has heard this before and sort of had that shift at that point in time where, you know, if I'm to track it neurobiologically, like because of that ego dissolution, I realized that death was nothing to be afraid of. And that if death and this concept of death of the self was nothing to be afraid of, then why would I why would I restrict myself and my creative capacity to do anything but something that's legendary, so to say? And I figured, okay, if if I if I want to set myself on that path of creating, you know, a business, creating a life, creating a, a way of being that's legendary, then that inherently means I have to do something that no one has has done before. So it's it's a very unconventional path. So that naturally led me to when I you know graduated from school, I was like. I traveled a little bit growing up. You know, I'd spent uh, a month in Tanzania for a, a class in, in, in college. I'd spent six weeks in Vienna and, and other places in Europe. And I really loved to travel. And I thought, how cool would it be to go to a foreign country, to live there, to learn the language, uh, to teach English? So I did that in Turkey. And while I was teaching English in Turkey, uh, in, a, in a place called Izmir, which is on the Aegean Sea, uh, across from the Greek islands. I had a lot Did of you free learn time. Turkish? I learned a little Turkish. I was I, I it was in one of those stages where I was trying to do everything. You know, I was trying to learn a new language. I was trying to launch my first business. I was trying to figure out how to teach English in a foreign country. I was trying to blah 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 blah. So I learned beginner's level Turkish. I had several Turkish friends, but I can't say I'm fluent in Turkish, unfortunately. And 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 so, you know, when I was teaching English, I maybe taught 15, 20 hours a week and I had all this free time. So with that free time, I watched TED Talks. I read books on entrepreneurship, like, you know, Zero to One and The Lean Startup and, you know, the 22 Immutable Laws of Marketing and, you know, like just sort of did that. You know, I remember I would just look on personal development blogs and be like, these are the 20 books that you should read if you want to start your own business. So I just like, I voraciously read. I watched a lot of TED Talks. I applied it in some of the teaching that I was doing. And then I started my first blog, which I called Travel and Wellness. And the blog was essentially like, you know, if you, if you want to travel, how do you stay healthy while you're traveling? How do you stay healthy as a digital nomad? How do you stay healthy as an expat? So I, I kind of applied some skills that way. It never really gained much momentum. I think my highlight was at some point, I got a backlink from Mark's Daily Apple, uh, which is the, the primal website with Mark Sisson. I was like, you know, I was like, yes, that there we go. But that eventually died away. And then um, soon after that, I sort of took those skills that I'd learned, both the teaching English in Turkey and, and all the stuff around entrepreneurship and marketing. And I moved to Thailand because one of those early influencers was Tim Ferriss, the four hour work week, geo arbitrage, digital oh, nomad, yeah. that whole scene. And I was like, hey, if I move to Chiang Mai, my baseline costs are $1,000 a month. And I only need to teach, you know, 10 hours a month to cover that. And then I can reinvest the, the profits in my business and grow and build from there. And so while I was in Chiang Mai, building that online teaching English business, because I was teaching people from all over the world, Japan, China, United States, Europe, Russia, wherever, um, I started to listen to podcasts. And Tim Ferriss was one of the podcasts that I happened to listen to. 
of course, and Jim Fadiman was on Tim Ferriss's podcast. This was March 2015, right? And Jim was talking about microdosing. And again, I, I, I flash back, not literally, but figuratively, to those early psychedelic experiences. <laughs> and I remembered from those early psychedelic experiences that I had this like afterglow for a week or two after where it just felt like I'm more connected to myself. I'm meditating more often. I'm more disciplined about the food that I eat. I'm kinder. I'm more connected to my friends and family, more open. And then I noticed that, you know, after a few weeks, that would sort of dissipate. And when I heard about microdosing, the the immediate thought that came to mind was, I wonder if microdosing could help with elongating that afterglow. And so I tried microdosing. I mean, any excuse to take acid a couple times a week on a consistent basis, I was I was all about. So I I went through it. I picked up the Psychedelic Explorer's Guide and started to read through that. And then as I was microdosing, I just did like a rabbit hole dive into psychedelics. And I read, this was 2015 at the time. So I read everything that mm. was currently available. I read all of the clinical papers from the 50s and 60s. You know, I read Terrence McKenna. I read Timothy Leary. I read... Um, um, you know, James Fadiman and the Psychedelic Explorers guy, there were probably 20 books that I picked up and I just wanted to get a whole scope of what was going on because in college, the thing that I'd studied and really understood well was history. So I was a history major. So I'm really interested in how patterns repeat. And so what that led to was I'm studying all of this, these books on psychedelics. I'm having my own microdosing experience and I'm, I'm an entrepreneur. And I'm an early entrepreneur and I'm loving this first project on teaching English, but I know it's not what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. I know it's just a stepping stone to something that, that might lie beyond that. And at this time, I was in Budapest and a couple friends came to visit and we did like a higher dose LSD experience and just were talking about where is this movement heading? Because we noticed Tim Ferriss was starting to publish podcasts and Joe Rogan was starting to publish podcasts. We noticed you know, clinical research was coming out of Johns Hopkins and NYU. And we were also aware of the momentum around cannabis legalization. And so in looking at those three trends, what we landed on was like, hey, if we start a platform now that, um, that exhibits psychedelics in a non-60s way, a non-counterculture way, we present them in a nice aesthetic, we present them with, with clear scientific research. Uh, we, we talk about it in a way where it's not about dropping out but instead, it's about, um, I love the phrase that Ken Wilber has, wake, waking up, growing up, and showing up, right? Where you're actually using mm, these tools to contribute to a better world. And we, we landed on microdosing as, as sort of the, the front edge of that because we felt that what, what went wrong in the 60s was not the research. There were, there were thousands of clinical papers published on LSD. What went wrong is when it made the leap from laboratories to wider culture. And that the, the spearhead for that were, you know, Ken Kesey and the acid tests, Timothy Leary and Ram Das. The spearhead for that was take as much acid as you can possibly handle and leave society. And, you know, I was well aware that my approach was not going to be in clinics and laboratories, FDA approval, but that I was much more around broader sort of awakening, if you will, and consciousness and uh, personal agency. And so I thought, you know, it feels like from an educational perspective, the best way to amplify this and ensure that this rolls out safely this time around is to communicate the potential benefits of microdosing as a starting point before 
you know, going and and totally go- losing yourself for two weeks in the jungle with ayahuasca. And I understand that that's not how I did it. It's probably not how you did it. That's not how many of us did it. But you know, the where we're now, right, to bring us here in September of 2021 is this is hitting mainstream popularity, and a lot of folks are now concerned. Well, if we have all these states who are decriminalizing it, you know, what's gonna what's gonna prevent a repeat of the the 60s again? And to me, what I come back to is lead with microdosing, get people to take small um, small steps, and then when they're ready to go and you know totally shed their sense of self and step into something new, then make sure that they have the the container that's available for them in that. So that's a bit of a long winded story, but it kind of brings you into all the different facets and narratives of how that, how that came to life. So then you, you started essentially presenting information in, in a way that served uh, what in a, in a way that served a niche that society was ready for when it came to psychedelics and a more like modernizing, modernizing psychedelic knowledge into an accessible online format and then growing it from there. Um, you guys have seen quite a bit of, of success with, with third wave. So you've basically been doing that, uh, full time since 2015. So in, in 2015, it started as a hobby. It was like, this is what I love to do on my nights and weekends. You know, I, um, we had published like an infographic. We had started to publish guides. I started a podcast. This was end of 2016. And then end of 2016, early 2017, I started to organize talks with local psychedelic societies. So I reached out to the Psychedelic Society in Amsterdam. I reached out to the Psychedelic Society in Baltimore and New York and Portland and Copenhagen and Oslo and Berlin. And I co-organized talks on microdosing through those societies. And, you know, we'd have 100, 200, sometimes 300 people who would come to those. And at that point, I was like, oh, we've really, we've really tapped into something with microdosing, but also with the approach that we're taking with this because, um, and I even see this now, like people don't want to be um, what's the right word? They don't want to. They don't want to be pa- pa- patronized. And sometimes, I you know, I find FDA clinical approval to be a, a somewhat patronizing process. Only these people can do it, and you need this, and you need this. People want to feel empowered, like they have the tools to be able to work with these things to explore consciousness. And so, when I did those talks, and there were a couple conferences in there as well, what I came to understand is. Um, that even in 2017, there was a deep curiosity around these substances and tools. And the crowds that I was speaking to were really from all over the place, from you know stay-at-home moms to college students who wanted to microdose instead of taking Adderall and Ritalin, to tech CEOs who were interested in the performance benefits, to you know those who struggle with depression or addiction and were looking to get off SSRIs or other medications. And yet, the the message that I communicated, I think, really hit home with more of the tech, leadership, entrepreneurship, performance uh, types of people, because that's where I was coming at it from. You know, I I, I mean, yeah. I've had my ups and downs with mental health. I'm 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 not I'm not um, I'm not I'm not I'm not saying I haven't had anxiety in the past or struggled with periods of depression, but I've never been clinically 
depressed. I've never been on any sort of pharmaceutical. So I'm really interested in the creative orientation and and how these substances can be used to um, create a new story for us. And so um, in 2017, around the time that I was doing these talks, I sold my other business, the Teaching English Business Platform. And then I made the commitment. Even I, I had no fucking idea how I was going to make a living from this because... Uh, you know, at that time when I when I sold my other business, we had like a single course on microdosing, and that's the only way that we were generating revenue. I was about to move to New York City, the most expensive city in the world. Um, but then what happened was um, in 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 a few of these talks that I was giving, I invited a, a friend of mine, Martine Sherp, and you know Martine. Oh yeah, you know Martine. Yeah, and um, great guy. And Martine and I you know, we're talking about, cause he's Dutch. And so we were talking about, man, how cool would it be if we could actually set up a legal retreat center in the Netherlands where, a, you know, a tech and entrepreneurial and sort of more spiritually oriented crowd might look to go. And so even though I had no idea how I was going to make a living through committing myself to this work, I went down that path with Martijn. And so in um, 2018, we launched Synthesis. And and synthesis is really throughout 2018 is how like that was immediately we 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 did well, uh, we raised investment, and we really created a gold standard for for psilocybin experiences. So I pretty much went from third wave as my hobby, running the other business to selling the business, holding third wave, but then balancing that with launching synthesis. And it really, I mean, it wasn't until 2019, um, and this is actually right after I came to Soltara. Wasn't until which is a whole other story. It wasn't until 2019, which you know, where I really made third wave the full time thing that I was dedicated to. Uh, I was still an advisor to Synthesis, but I, you know, we decided that if I couldn't come in full time on Synthesis, it was better to just you know take a step back from that. And so, 2019, I brought in a, a, a partner and we raised a small amount of investment. And then over the past two and a half years, that's when we've really seen, I would say significant strides in the growth of the team, in revenue generation, in the programs that we're rolling out. And I'm just, I'm, you know, the approach that we've taken has been considerably unconventional, even for the psychedelic space. And I'm really proud of how our team continues to step up and support that because, um, you know, what I continue to come back to is a lot of what we see in the psychedelic space right now is an orientation towards fixing the problem and that's fixing the mental health crisis, that's fixing the pharmaceutical industry, that's fixing all of these sort of things that we perceive as wrong or broken. And I'm Saving just... Saving the world. Yeah, that. And I'm just distinctly opposed <laughs> to that. I, I, I would much rather like ask, what is it that we want to create and allow that new creation to supersede whatever was broken before it? And I feel like that's what we're focused on with, with, with Third Wave is how can these tools be used not necessarily to fix what's broken, but instead to inspire a new story as it relates to business and politics and um, you know community and education, all of these all of these things. That's an interesting approach, man, fixing it from uh, well, fixing things again, I, I use the word fixing things, but creating, taking the creative approach, which is I think more freeing and open to novelty and novel ideas in an, in a non, uh, pressurized way. 
right? Whereas like if you're fixing something that's wrong, there's an urgency there, there's a pressure there. And ultimately psychedelics are not about urgency and pressure. They're about letting happen what needs to happen, letting go. I mean, soltara, like the verb soltar in Spanish means to let go, right? That was the whole... That was the whole basis behind the brand that uh, that Melissa came up with. So I definitely see how just allowing the creative juices to flow is is perhaps a more positive uh, approach than uh, than taking it, you know. But I guess there is also kind of when you're looking at like therapeutics and stuff like that, addressing a problem is really is really at the root of therapeutic medicines as well in a way, but maybe that's time to change that paradigm. And and that's sort of my sense. It's like the, the whole paradigm that we've existed within, let's call it the medical model, you know, is about, oh, something's wrong with that person. Now we should give them this medicine to fix them and we should prescribe it to them and they need to do this. And what that does is it takes the power away from the individual to feel capable of making that decision themselves. And um, so much of what we're learning through psychedelic medicine at the intersection of this sort of emerging part of medicine is um, psychedelics essentially in, in, in that sort of deconditioning process allow us to tap into this inner intuition around, you know, the, the inner healing intelligence is sometimes what it's referred to around, well, what is it that, what is it that I actually need? Is it physical? Is it emotional? Is it spiritual? Is it, you know, communi- communitas? And the more that we create models and mirrors, but not directions and prescriptions, I think the more successful uh, this whole movement will become. And the more that we, I so, and I want to clarify in this: FDA approval is necessary. FDA approval is is central to uh, creating legitimacy around these medicines. And even Rick Doblin, who is the godfather of all of this, has been explicit about saying, "Oh yeah, like." MDMA for PTSD is great, but what we really want to do is legalize MDMA for as many people as possible. And so I prefer just to start from that. Well, let's not, let's not posture like we're going to do this when really we want to do this. Let's hold the energy of what it is that we absolutely want. Let's hold that creative vision together. And then let's ask, what do we need to do to get there? And I'm already seeing that. You know, Michael Pollan just published his book. I think it's called Your Mind on Plants. And he's already starting that post-drug war conversation around, okay, now that we realize that cannabis might not be as dangerous as we thought, and psychedelics certainly aren't as dangerous as we thought, how do we envision a world that's beyond a lot of this sort of, I would call it an industrial framework? And um, and yeah, and 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 so... That to me is the real potential of psychedelic substances. As medicines, they're efficacious. As instigators for a story that's rooted in interconnectedness, I think they are our key allies in addressing a lot of the existential issues that we're facing. Because I think both you and I realize that like things are kind of a little fucked up at this point in time. Like definitely things seem a little bit broken. Nah. You know? It's all good. <laughs> and uh, and and we and both of us with the work that we're doing. We're committed to creating a better world. Uh, and these medicines are, I think, potent allies in doing that. That's, it's, it's, it's an interesting topic. Because um, you're, you're absolutely right. Like a lot of people, um, 
take this approach that you know especially with like with like ayahuasca like you know the 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 plants have a plan or there's uh you know i i even did a documentary with you know james fadiman was in it dennis mckenna was in this documentary i did a couple years ago right after the uh we filmed interviews at the 2017 psychedelic science conference the maps Uh, psychedelic science conference in oakland uh, Jim Fadiman was on the the gentleman who you were mentioning before, the king of psychedelic uh, of of microdosing, Dennis McKenna, who was known as one of the you know godfathers of bringing uh, psychedelics to the Western world from South America, plant medicines. But I've you know I've heard I've often heard this kind of argument that that uh, psychedelics, uh, specifically ayahuasca. But generally, psychedelics, specifically ayahuasca, have this kind of agenda to, you know, save humanity or they have the power to, like, save humanity and change human nature from ruining the world to um, to saving the world, basically. You know, it's kind of a, it's kind of a, a, a Star Wars uh, adventure story that... That you know is is a prevalent emotion and is a, is a prevalent perception when it comes to this work. A lot of people feel that way. Um, you know, as uh, as as did I when I when I first got started. Um, it doesn't seem like things have gotten much better in the past uh, ten years, though. You know, and I, I don't know if I don't know if psychedelics can actually save the world, and maybe they can, and and that would be awesome. But, you know, maybe they're just here to help us come to terms with the world going to shit and going, you know, whatever, whatever cycle humanity's on, you know, there's, there seems to be like natural cycles to nature, natural cycles to evolution, just the creation is made of cycles and perhaps we're on a cycle and perhaps psychedelics are good for just being more mature and and coming to grips with the downward slope of the cycle we're on right now um in a similar way as psychedelics are good for coming to term with end of coming to terms with end of life anxiety right there's a lot of experimentation uh going on with therapeutic psilocybin or perhaps some other psychedelics that you're aware of that are treating hospice patients that are definitely going to die. They don't know when they're going to die, but they're definitely going to die sooner than later. And the end of life anxiety that comes to, that comes along with that are using psychedelics to perhaps uh, make that less traumatic and less depressing, um, and and you know become one with the universe, one with creation, one with the infinite yet finite nature of life itself right so i wonder if uh could be either one of those well there's like an acceptance (laughs) no i love that because and it can be a both and there's there's an acceptance of this is how it is and what i learned from psychedelics when i was doing it was i wasn't aware of how much i guess I didn't really feel the environmental degradation until I did psychedelics. I didn't really feel how disconnected I was until I worked with psychedelics. So what psychedelics can do is they just bring us into a new awareness. 
And then it's it's what we choose to do with that new awareness. And some of that is acceptance. But for people like me and you, I think what's in our bones is to never back down, <laughs> to never give up. And and if we see an opportunity to um to create that's inspired by these medicines and and there are more and more leaders who are using it in that way then i think in the the sort of what the the long the long arm trajectory of of humanity these will help us to see our way through whatever we're going through right now and by no means does that uh is that a promise to say that things won't get darker and darker and darker for the next 5 10 15 20 years i i don't think it's going to be easy it really does feel like winter is coming um in in some ways and um and 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 there's you know there's a few threads there there you know we could look at the end of industrialism right we've been we've been in this industrial era since the mid 15th century with the invention of the printing press and that's now basically dying itself and we're just going through this massive transition about oh we used to organize everything in this way and now we have to organize things in this way and one of the shifts is going from central hierarchy, mass standardization, um, you know, corporations to a much more decentralized uh, way of being, and um, and I think it, it feels like that decentralized way of being uh, is what psychedelics help us to embody and help us to learn. Uh, cryptocurrencies can be part of that as well. Communal living uh, could be part of that as well. Um, remote work is part of that as well. So I see those trends and that that's where I prefer to put my energy. It's like, if those trends are coming, how do we build for those and create for those? And how could psychedelics be potent allies? But I, 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 I disagree with or I don't disagree, but I'm I'm always skeptical about like, oh yeah, the plants have this figured out, or the plants are speaking through us. I still think we as humans are we're fucking evolved as shit, and that we're learning from the plants. They are teachers, but it's still our responsibility to. I totally address agree. This. I totally agree. Um, just putting. Uh, putting the blame on, or not, 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 not the blame, but transferring responsibility to the plants is, is probably not an effective way to look at it. But looking at it like the responsibility is still on us, and the plants can help us become more activated and effective and aware beings on the planet. Which I feel that that uh, they have for me. Certainly, ayahuasca has for me help me become a more effective and and more directed person in life, um, which has made me more creative in actual reality. Um, I'm sure that, uh, you know, when you mentioned that you have this gene to not give up and you're, you're very determined and creative, uh, which you've proven with your success in, in um, uh, with the third wave, you know, maybe it's uh, maybe it's waking people up to their own effectiveness and ability to to create, and maybe there is a critical mass to to steer the ship. But I I you know I I I'm wary of the cop out of like just drink the medicine and then you know you're waking up and that's the only thing that needs to be done. It's like 
no, you drink the medicine, then you wake up, then you need to get your shit together and then you need to help toe the line if anything is to happen. Um, you know, and maybe there is, maybe, maybe that, maybe that kind of curve is being taken right now, uh, even though it can be hard to see. And maybe it's just one of those darkest before dawn moments. And, you know, there are, there are also many positive things going on in the world right now. Most of the trends are pointing to like, even the lowest class people in the U S have, you know, access to more, uh, to more than um, than some of the middle class or higher class in lots of other countries. So there's like, uh, there's a book that's recently out. I, I can't recall the author. It's called 10 Trends Every Smart Person Needs to Know. Uh, he's been on Jordan Peterson recently. He's been on uh, Joe Rogan recently. And, um, you know, I've heard this argument before from guys like, Peter Diamandis and Stephen Kotler when they wrote the the book uh, Abundance and then the follow-up to that bold. There are lots of, when you look at the data, there are lots of positive trends going on in the world right now. Um, but there's also, you know, you, what you see, what's presented to us is also quite disturbing. And there are a lot of disturbing things going on. Um, in my opinion, mostly related to ecological degradation, climate change and stuff like that. But who knows, man, maybe we are turning a corner and maybe, maybe parts of us are turning a corner and parts of us won't turn that corner. Parts of, you know, parts of us will be shed. Whoever really can't keep up is just going to kind of, you know, fall out of existence in, in whichever way that happens. Well, and and Terrence McKenna um, in the eighties, gave a number of talks at Esalen and he cataloged a lot of them in uh, this first book that he published. It's called The Archaic Revival. So it's a book he published before Food of the Gods. And in that, in that book, um, he's having a conversation with Ralph Metzner, another, another OG of the psychedelic space. And Ralph is asking him something along the lines of like, do you think everyone would benefit from working with these really powerful medicines? And Terrence essentially replied back with something along the lines of, you know, the, the, this is like opening that box, so to say, of consciousness with things like ayahuasca or 5-MeO or even psilocybin. It's not for everyone. You know, it's probably for 5 to 10% of people to really go to that level of depth and knowledge. And yet, maybe that's all we need, right? Like, because it was the same thing in the Enlightenment, um, you know, when the printing press was invented, where it wasn't that everyone immediately became literate. It was that literacy used to only be in the hands of the priests who could read Latin in church. And then with the invention of the printing press and the age of enlightenment, it was about 10% of people who learned how to read and write. And from that 10% of people, they set up the whole industrial system. They set up the whole university educational system. They set up all these new ways of learning and connecting and business and it wasn't like we needed at that point 100% of people to be literate and read. It was just the 10%. And I think a similar thing will happen now where it's really how do we reach, how do we help 5 to 10% of the most influential people wake up to the truth of who they are and then be informed from that experience to create new agreements across business and education and politics with an understanding that 
90% of people just follow and do what they're told. And so once those systems are created, then the people can fall into that. But for now, and I think you know, you're probably experiencing this, a lot of us independent sort of thinkers and doers are, are starting to witness just how sheeple-like, and I hate that, but I'm just going to use it, how people just are obedient and just do what authority says. And what if that authority was actually healthy and, and cared for people and was loving and compassionate and was, um, you know, generated wisdom from working with something like ayahuasca? That's sort of the, that's the optimistic hope that, that I hold. I don't think it's everyone and anyone that needs to go drink ayahuasca. To be honest, from my perspective, you know, most people will, would do more harm than good. Maybe just give them microdoses to help with X, Y, and Z. Um, but for those who can hold that sense, that level of depth with an experience like that, you know, the the, the more folks who un, who have this mystical experience, so to say, the the better. Yeah, I guess there's that that cohort of people who create and lead culture, right? In in society, right? And then there's the cohort of people who just make decisions about who to follow uh, basically, you know, and then take the lead from, from, from others. So, yeah, I mean, it's certainly going to be interesting to see regardless of the outcome. And, you know, I've kind of, to me, it doesn't really change what I do in the day to day, what the outcome is. It's like, if the world is going to shit in five years, I'm doing the same thing I'm doing today. You know, if the world lasts forever and I live to 120, I'm doing the same thing that I'm doing today. Right. But great. I get to, you know, I get to do it for like 60 more years or whatever. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I hope for the best and, and, you know, I always like, I would like to be able to, to by example and even by providing, you know, content, try to motivate people and, and try to inspire people to actually step up to the plate and like, and, and, you know, take that, take that attitude of like, you know, make the most out of your life, whether, whether you feel it like it's, it's all going to shit or whether it's not. And even if you feel like it's going to shit, try to help it not go to shit, right? Even if there's no chance, like you just never know, right? Well, I mean, it's like, you know, Viktor Frankl and man's search for meaning, right? Like this dude is in the he's in fucking Auschwitz. And yeah, he still found these things that were so important to him in the midst of all that darkness that kept him alive, that kept him continuing to think about a new day. And it feels like, I mean, that's an extreme example, obviously a very extreme example. But those, those are why psychedelics are so helpful in this, in this process because they're meaning-making tools. They actually help us to, to, to sort of shift away from all the external bullshit that we're always told about who we need to be and what we need to do and what job we need to do and who, like all that shit. And they actually allow us to go inwards and go, well, what story is it that I want to create with the, with the life that I have to live? And how can I live that story in a way that helps uh, not only myself, but most importantly, where meaning comes from is helping others and serving others and contributing to something that's greater than ourselves. 
And so, um, I, and so I, I just resonate with that, that, uh, regardless of what's happening externally, what gives humanity, what gives individual humans meaning is a sense of agency, a sense of purpose, a sense of creation, a sense of optimism. And the more that we can thread those memes into our lives, the better, because most of the energy is going against that. Most of the energy is fear. Most of the energy is worry. Most of the energy is fixing problems. It's a very reactive pessimistic and negative way of being. And what I've found from my psychedelic experiences is, and still today, if I, if I tend to slip into that mindset, they pop me right out of that because they help me to realize that mm. I am 100% responsible for everything that happens. And that is, it is a choice that I get to make every single day about how, how I show up. Beautiful, bro. Uh, last question. Where do you see the field of uh, psychedelics going in the next five to 10 years? So we talked a little bit about the, the decrim movements, you know, what's going on with state-by-state legalization, FDA approval. Um, so if we use that as a landscape of what's going on geographically, my sense of where the industry will end up is... You know, right now we really perceive psychedelics as a one thing, right? Like we often hear this phrase, the psychedelic community. Uh, we hear this phrase around like we're all one. And what I'm noticing is we're just going to have more and more fractals within that psychedelic space. And that instead of it being we're a psychedelic community, it's going to be much more like how do we integrate psychedelics into biotech? How do we integrate psychedelics into retreat centers? How do we integrate psychedelics into executive leadership, into education? So instead of it, instead of psychedelics being this sort of stigmatized, otherworldly, kind of not well understood topic or concept, within the next, I would say, five to seven years, there will be a lot more familiarity with it to such a degree that psychedelics themselves will become weaved in to all of these other peripheral industries that it can support. And what I anticipate happening, again, because of the nature of the psychedelic experience, is that it will help to, essentially, in each one of those structures, education, business, healthcare, it will help to um, reduce hierarchy. It will help to create greater efficiencies and sort of energetic exchange between the people who are working on that. It will help to realign incentives. So much of incentive incentives are everything, especially in business. And so many incentives right now are oriented towards profitability, towards um, status, towards you know achievement and growth and growth and growth. And I think what psychedelics are going to help to do is realign those incentives so they're much more around connection, community, what I call existential wealth. Right? How do we come to realize that true wealth isn't in an abstract number in your checking account that obviously needs to be covered, but you know anything beyond a certain level isn't going to bring additional happiness or joy or contentment. But instead, how we choose to spend our time, what we get to create, how we get to engage with community, all of that is tied into this concept of existential wealth. So I see a total reframing of how we perceive our sense of self and how we perceive uh, the world around us that's really rooted in what I would call these systems of interconnectedness. And the best example of that is Buckminster Fuller. 
Uh, and you know, Buckminster Fuller is a, was an inventor throughout the 20th century, invented the geodesic dome, talked about spaceship Earth, talked about kind of this future that we were stepping into. And he's really created, I would say, somewhat the Bible for that new way of being and living that we really are inspired to step into. And so we'll hmm. start to see the beginnings of that. Um, I think on a, on a few other fun topics as well, my, my sense is that the state-by-state legalization and decrim will significantly outpace FDA approval uh, to the point where in the, I, I would say within 10 years, the FDA will be largely um, defunct and have very little influence. And a lot of that influence will become localized into local uh, states and cities. Um, I would also say that within, let's say, five to, to seven years, there will be somewhat of a, a legal market available for psychedelics. And I don't know totally how that will work. We're already seeing that in Oregon. California has some bills that are being passed. Michigan just introduced one. And that, though, that momentum is just going to continue to crest and to fall. And I would say the last thing that is a fun uh, element is, you know, psychedelics are going to help to decentralize religion. Um, And what I mean by that is we're already seeing this where there's a lot of churches. I mean, you and I know of the two major churches, the UDV and the Santo Daime, who have, you know, use of ayahuasca as a religious tool in Oregon and New Mexico. But there are many others now that are sort of like popping out like mushrooms uh, around like this religion and this religion and this religion. And so I think there's going to be sort of a decentralization of, of religion itself and that these new religions will be localized in physical places like an Esalen or like a Sultara or like an Omega Institute where instead of having boundaries between, well, this is who I am at work and this is who I am at home and this is who I am at church and this is who I am in whatever, people are going to look to exist within communities and places where they can be fully themselves, the whole thing, where there's, there's their life they're living, there's the work that they're doing, then there's the spiritual practice that weaves in through, through all of that. And so we'll start to see the beginnings. I mean, we're already seeing the beginnings of that. That, that was our vision for synthesis and what synthesis is now doing with the land that they purchased in Oregon to, to some degree. And I think that will just continue to grow and develop as more and more people leave mainstream religion and are still looking for answers to these deeper questions about who am I? Why am I here? What is meaningful to me? You know, where do I put my faith in something greater? Um, atheism and sort of this overly reductionist framework just leaves a lot to be desired. And what plant medicines I think can do is to help us remember you know, our, our divinity uh, at the end of the day. And, and then it's just, what, what do we choose to do with that divinity? Yeah. Yeah. That was uh, beautifully put. Um, a lot of, a lot of, I mean, it's, it's almost weird for me to even think about religion and like, there's, I'm right? just I'm so not religious at all. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, I don't feel the need to define really my beliefs or to put my beliefs into a box or even to have beliefs. I mean, I just be, I just am. I don't need to necessarily be part of a, of a particular affiliation or follow a particular set of predetermined guidelines, rules, or, or uh, arbitrated beliefs. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's a good point. Um, well, man, uh, I'm wishing you in third wave uh, the best of 
luck and success. Your new project, potential project in Michigan sounds awesome. Uh, are you still involved with Synthesis at all? So as an advisor, but you know, the, the team now is running that and really they're doing a phenomenal job. I mean, Synthesis is really taken off. So um, a little bit, but not significantly. Okay, cool. Well, anyways, I'm sure you'll be having fun and playing around in this space for years to come. So um, thank you so much. I appreciate making the time. I don't know if we actually went a little bit over time, but hopefully that's not too bad. Um, other than that, man, well, I guess we'll uh, be seeing each other around. Absolutely, Daniel. This is fun. Thanks for having me on the show. Dope. Peace out, brother. All right.